Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. You know, you can probably guess, based on the content of my podcast and what sort of things I like to talk about, that in my everyday life, uh, particularly when it has to do with the groups that I am among, the sorts of uh, ministry efforts that I try to be a part of or conduct myself, I'm the kind of person who likes to do what I can to help people. And uh, yeah, if you suspect that, you would be quite correct, of course. And here's the thing. I have always kind of ticked this way. Uh, The foundation of it, and by the way, this is not just to talk about myself. I will be going somewhere philosophical with this. But um, it started out for me in just having a general sense of curiosity. And through the years, I've learned more and more to just value curiosity in and of itself, like many other childlike Uh, childlike attributes. But I was always fascinated to understand how things tick, but most most pivotally, most essentially, how people tick. What is it that motivates them? What is it that gets them going? Uh, This goes a bit into my testimony as well, in that I personally have always had a bit of a cement-in-the-shoes kind of experience of ambition and motivation in general. So Part of my interest in seeing how uh, other people tick is to try to grasp what it is that really motivates people. But anyway, now I am going a little too much just talking about myself. Anyway, the main point is, yeah, I've always wanted to understand how things tick, how people tick, what makes things go in life. And in that, because I essentially have begun to discover many truths in that pursuit, that have helped me to a great extent, well, naturally, if you want to serve, if you want to do good in the world, if you want to be selfless, you're going to take that benefit, those things that you have gained that have genuinely helped you, and try to spread them, try to get that same thing or same set of things operating in other people's lives. Now, as I've gone through this sort of effort, pretty much from not day one, of course, but pretty early on in my time, I've had to go through the school of hard knocks, as so many people do, and realize sometimes the hard way, there's only really two ways that we learn. We learn by, well, learning, we learn by gaining knowledge, or we gain that knowledge through experience, uh, which again is the latter and hard way. Well, I'm sure I've learned plenty of things through knowledge because I am a very, again, curious person, want to understand. Um, But some things I've had to learn the hard way. And one of these things is who actually can be helped. Because, of course, there have been a number of people that I have tried to be a part or sorry, have a part of their lives. I've tried to help. I've tried to spread, give them nuggets of knowledge, give them wisdom, give them something by which they might be able to change. Um, And it just hasn't worked out. It hasn't uh, gone that way. Nothing really has shifted. And eventually, with the majority of them, I don't ever see them or talk to them again. 
And that's extremely sad, and it's been disheartening for me, for sure. And there have been a few times, uh, maybe only one or two, where there was also an ulterior motive in myself that I was aware of. I tried to tamp it down, but that was also very hard on top of it. I don't think that that was the sole and only reason, as I will be going into in a bit. But, you know, that's just to be honest. Like, sometimes helpers are not really trying to help. They're trying to get something out of it. And I've definitely been in those shoes. That's the point. Anyway, so what, what's been on my mind the last few days is what in particular I have learned about those who cannot be helped, who I cannot help, and who I believe, quite foundationally, cannot be helped, period. I've had it said to me before that, oh, maybe you're not the right person for the job or something like that. I mean, theoretically, that's possible, but I do not believe it to be the case, and frankly, I think that kind of comment is insulting and belittling. The kinds of people who cannot be helped are those who, as I have seen in the past, have what I call the stench of desperation. See, when we look at the matter between those who can actually change, and those who seem unable to, maybe unwilling to change. It seems on the surface to be extremely complicated. It seems like it should be multidimensional, like there's so many complicated things going on in a person's life, the things that they've suffered, the uh, activities they have been a part of throughout the course of their entire existence, and all of these things conglomerate into can or can't change in the end, but it's it's so many different factors, and I've come to realize that no. No, it's, it's actually just one factor. And like I said, there is this stench of desperation, and that is the first sign. You have people come to you, and if you're the kind of per if you're somebody like me, you will find as you try to go out there and, you know, really commit to people and try to give people wisdom, there will be some who kind of smell that, so to speak, and come to you. And by the way, those people are some of the best ones you could possibly find, because that is one of the first indications, although it is necessary but not sufficient, it is one of the first signs to show that such a person does in fact want to change. They genuinely want to change. Maybe. If they come to you, great. But if, at this point, as I look back, if there are people who come to me with this stench of desperation, that is a very bad first sign. And what I mean by stench of desperation is this. They come to you or come to me wanting help. I've got these problems. I, I need them to go away or change or be diminished or whatever. And by the way, I want you to do everything for me. See, I don't have any friends, and I want you to be my friend. Or I don't have any groups of friends, and I want you to supply me with a group of friends. Or I don't have a good working environment, and I want you to figure out why all of this is happening, and what I should do, and so on, and so on. Or... I have this problem with PTSD, and I want you to be the one to find the core of this issue. What I mean by stench of desperation is the kind of person who 
doesn't want to do anything about their problems, they just want their problems to go away. And they're looking for somebody to offload all the responsibilities onto to solve their problems, every single one of them, and they don't have to lift any additional finger beyond seeking help. But if that's all they want to do, then help, quote unquote, is not what they are seeking. If you want help, genuinely speaking, it's like being a young ox on the yoke um, being newly trained by an old ox, one who knows exactly what they're doing. The reason why I use this illustration is this is the one that Jesus uses, and the uh, Jews would have known this. If you had a young ox that was going to be you know, plowing the fields, what you would do is you would have him yoked up with an older, more experienced ox that could, uh, knowing the ropes, could basically guide the younger one along. If that's that, that to me is a much better picture of help. Because, of course, yes, you are getting a great deal of help. You're getting guidance, you're getting direction, you're even getting strength under the same yoke as you so that you don't even have to work quite as hard. However, you're still helping pull the cart, you're still directing things, and you're still pulling the plow, which is not easy work you're still going to be working pretty hard. You're just not required to do everything. But the desperation people, at the end of the day, they really don't want to do anything. Maybe in some cases all they really want to do is complain. They come to you over and over again, and it's always the same problem again, and... You try to give them some pointers, try to you know, enlighten them about some things, try to unveil some blind spots they might be dealing with, and then you go your way and hope things get better and get together with them again maybe a month later, and guess what? Same problems. Nothing has changed. No decisions have been made. I keep dating the wrong guys, and it just doesn't work out. Okay, well, maybe you'll want to work on this and... You know, maybe you want to uh, stop looking for this attribute and start looking for something that actually has to do with character. And you go your merry way and meet up with the girl again. And, ugh, this guy that I'm dating, he has all the same problems as the last one. Well, did you even listen to me? Did you apply anything? Oh, no, no, I forgot what you said. Great. These kinds of people, once again, they just want to vent. They want to be heard. They want to be, in that sense, quote, cared about. Again, I don't really understand how you could define that as being cared about. But they just want their moment in the spotlight, at least in your eyes. And uh, that's really about it. See... They can say to you, and I think meaning it, once again, somebody who comes to you probably doesn't mean it, that they do want to change. They just don't want to do anything for that change. They don't want to remember anything that is said to them in wisdom and help. They don't want to put, through, put out the effort to uh, maybe go through a bit of embarrassment or facing somebody in their lives that has been abusive or face their own sense of selfishness, or laziness as the case may be, they don't actually want to do anything like that, but they do at least want to appear to be the kind of person who cares about changing. 
I mean, doesn't everybody who at least considers themselves Christian or virtuous or anything like that? It's a lot easier to look like, as I've said many times before, look like you are the right kind of person rather than actually being the right kind of person. Now, having gone through all of this, now I take a step deeper. Desperate for God. This is something that I grew up with. This concept, among some Christians, at least I knew it was common in the church that I grew up in, one of them. I'm not sure how common it is outside of that matrix. But many preachers and pastors would talk quite a bit about how desperate we should be for God. We're helpless without God. We need God. We have to be absolutely, essentially, at the, at the end of our rope, because that is literally where we always are. And know that that's where we are with God, and just be desperate, desperate, desperate. Well, in a certain sense, very broad, I can agree. For example, if you really believe that God is the God of the universe, Jehovah, that uh, nothing would exist without him, then pretty obviously, yes, we would have no capacity for to do anything if it wasn't for the existence of God in the first place, because he is the first causer of all things that are. So, of course, we need him, yes. And I would agree with that. We do need God. But to be desperate for him, it really depends on what you mean. C.S. Lewis made the, I think, very right point and very good point that God himself is so modest and so humble that he will accept people into uh, into relationship with him even if he is merely a matter of quote-unquote last resort. That we've gone down every other path, every alternative that we could possibly find, and finding nothing, we turn to God, and God will even accept us then. If that is the sort of thing that's meant by desperation, then absolutely. Or perhaps you find yourself outside of your depth, um, maybe like Moses, who is uh, being told to go to Pharaoh and to ask the king, uh, the lord of an entire land to let his people go. Uh, understandably, he'd be quite nervous, feel that he's entirely out of his depth. And then God comes to him and, and I'm talking about the burning bush conversation. He's like, all right, throw your rod down on the ground. Trump turns into a snake. Put your hand inside your robe. Goes leprous. Put it in again. It's fine. What is God doing? He's like, as far as I can tell, he's basically saying, yeah, you, you are beyond your depth. So here, I'm going to give you, give you a hand. If that's the sort of desperation that people are talking about, I need a bit of help because I'm absolutely end of the, at the end of my rope, then yes. The right person to turn towards is the one who has the strength, the or sorry, the power, yes, and the responsibility to do those things. But what about at other times? What about when we do have our own responsibilities, and it is for us to do such things? Take, for example, Gideon. See, most of us remember Gideon for those who, who know their Bibles, or know the Bible. Most of us remember Gideon as being the guy who uh, basically made his kind of faith tests of God. 
I want this fleece that is in the middle of the room to be totally wet and the rest of the ground to be totally dry. God does it. He's like, all right, if you wouldn't mind, I know I'm kind of testing your patience, but um, how about the opposite? The fleece will remain entirely dry and the ground will be completely wet. God does it. It's kind of a, a, uh, a test of God's faithfulness, a you know asking for proof that God is really with him. And Christians today even use the phrase, uh, put out your fleece, I think is how it goes. As a sort of, um, yeah, I want, uh, God, I want you to show me that you're really with me here. Now, we remember that about Gideon, but that is not how the story of Gideon begins. The story of, of Gideon begins with God commanding him to take out the altar of Baal that his father had built. Does Gideon ask for a test then? No. Now, he waits for nightfall, and for good reason, because his dad was the one who built the altar. The community around him was worshiping Baal, not Jehovah. So he does it under cover of night to basically be shrewd and to escape uh, escape harm, escape punishment, essentially. And lo and behold, the next morning, the uh, community was pretty pissed, and they did want to put Gideon to death. His father, in fact, is the one who uh, defended him. But Gideon pretty much right up and did it. He didn't need a test. He didn't need additional help. Um, he had had certainly a very miraculous and very real encounter with God. And apparently that was all that he needed. And he up and does it on his own strength, so to speak. Yes, with God's impetus, with God's instruction. But he just went ahead and did it. If we believed that we need to be, if we really did believe, that is, that we need to be desperate for God in all of these ways, then, at least the way that it seems to be communicated, then we would essentially be doing nothing. We would constantly be, I don't know, crying and wetting ourselves until God comes to us and uh, gives us some help or instruction or whatever. To constantly be desperate for God, frankly, sounds exhausting, and it sounds annoying. Again, I use my own experience for this example. In my own experience, the more desperate somebody is, the more annoying they are, because I know they're not really going to do much. They're just going to keep coming back and, oh, I'm so desperate. Oh, I need help. Oh, I can't do anything on my own. Oh, and nothing is ever going to happen. So, third level. First of all, people who are desperate don't generally want to do anything. Secondly, why would we need to be desperate for God? And thirdly, and I think this is the most prolific and most common form of this issue, I can't do anything without God. I'm useless without God. I can do nothing except for God who strengthens me. D did you know, as far as I'm aware, that's not even biblical? There is no verse that says that. The Bible does say that we can do great things with God. The Bible does say, such as Paul, when he talks about the fact that all of his righteousness is filthy rags, everything that he had done in the past is nothing, it's garbage. But he didn't say that he could do nothing, even now, without God. Now, without God is the loaded term here. 
without believing in God, without being on God's side, I think, yes, that's what Paul meant. But if Paul meant, I can do nothing unless God is actively, presently helping me do each individual thing, like the ox and the yoke, I can do nothing. I don't think that that is true. I don't think that Paul believed that, and I'm and I can't tell in any of the verses that have anything to do with this subject that the rest of the Bible makes any other message. On the contrary, God seems to take very seriously the efforts to give us responsibilities and then leave us to those responsibilities. Let us do them and essentially prove ourselves. The Bible talks about how we should be obedient to God, as if it is up to us to be obedient. If we were to believe that we can do nothing outside of God, in other words, if God is actively strengthening us at every moment, then essentially we're back to predeterminism. And in my opinion, this kind of phraseology, desperate for God, can't do anything without him, is a form of Calvinism that has snuck in to the evangelistic church. See, we think it makes us really humble. We think it makes us really modest when we say crap like that. I can't do anything except God help me. Yeah, it sounds very modest, but what it actually does, objectively, is remove our free will. Because if we can do nothing except God helps us, then nothing evil could ever be done or nothing outside of God's will could ever be done. Because either God also has to help evil people do evil so that they can do anything of any weight or merit or meaning, or those who are doing evil are always those who are without God's help, and those who are doing good are only those who are receiving God's help. But is that true? Is it the case that those who do not know God and do not have a relationship with him can do nothing that is objectively good? I never believe that to be the case. I do not see that to be the case. There are people who don't know God who follow the rules of God. In a sense, they are obedient, at least to God's values, and they do genuine good in the world. Many of us Christians know that there are homosexuals who have charity organizations, and they do some genuine good. Do we agree with their lifestyle? Largely not. But they can do some real good. Are, do they have God's help? I would doubt it. The Bible does also say that if we are obedient to God, it will go well with us. Is that because God is actively helping us at every moment to do good? Or is it because doing good puts us in parallel with the physical and objective universe that God has created so that doing good gets us benefit? For example... If we were actually to treat the ground in farming the way that God um, instructed the Jews to do, such as giving it its Sabbaths and other agricultural practices, would we in fact be getting greater crops? We know this to be true sci uh, scientifically. The ground needs to refresh. It needs to rest and get its nutrients back to feed plants to, so that those plants can grow. Is that a moral thing to do? Maybe, if you can say that treating the earth well is moral. I'm not sure about that. 
but it would be obedient to God to do so. And God certainly took it very seriously. When the Israelites were sent into exile, it specifically points out that the land was allowed to have its Sabbaths because the Israelites had not given it so. But you do this, and you, in fact, get greater crops. Yeah, you have to go that one year simply gleaning from what the land produces of itself, as it is instructed of the Israelites to do, I think, in Deuteronomy. But you're going to get far more on the other six years if you do it. You have to be a little bit more forward-thinking. But back to the main point. Is obedience to God successful because God is actively blessing us at every moment? Or is it that God already has worked it into the physical universe to benefit us when we do well? Well, I think in a way both of those things are true. God will occasionally give us blessing above and beyond the blessings that he has already front-loaded into the universe and into earth itself, but we also get those blessings from the earth or from physical reality. Because God himself, being the maker thereof, of course, has also instructed us to work in parallel with his creation. Duh! So yes, I think it does not make sense in any way you look at it to argue that we can do nothing of any good or merit or weight or meaning without the active, present help of God at every moment. I do not mean to say that there is no influence of God in us if we are Christian at every given time. There certainly is, at least in a sense. But the emphasis is not God empowering us, except by the Holy Spirit, the emphasis is, do we obey? And just for a quick additional note on the Holy Spirit, I don't recall, I would have to look into it, that there is any indication that the Holy Spirit is there to help us to do literally everything either. The Holy Spirit is there to manifest spiritual gifts, such as prophecy or words of wisdom and knowledge, and also to give us instruction, as Jesus said, but to help us lift our fingers, to help us take each step, to help us do our work. I don't think so. Paul, in fact, instructs us that we should do everything that we do as unto the Lord. Do we need the Holy Spirit in order to do that at all? I'm not so sure. We're instructed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. But does that mean that we can do absolutely nothing if we, say, forget for a while? And nothing good? I'm not so sure about that. If we did really believe that we can do nothing outside of God, then that to me would be like going back to the parable of the talents. And say the middle guy, the guy, the guy who got two talents, which, by the way, again, is a peck of money. It's quite a bit. I think, if I remember correctly, it's basically two years' wages all combined. Say the middle guy... Instead of being faithful and doubling the money to four talents, he took the talents, put it in a letter, sent it to his master, who was wherever he was at the time. And it says to the master, no, 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 I, you don't understand. I can't do this. Only you can do this. I, I'm nothing by myself. You have to be here helping me. So here's your two talents back. And I'm just going to wait for you to come back so that I can do anything with these two talents. 
do, do you think that the master would come back and say anything to that guy unlike what he said to the third one? The third one who hid the money away and didn't even invest it in the bank or put it in the bank as an investment to gain interest, which was the master's very instruction to him. The master was about not being lazy. The master was about taking your responsibilities and your stewardships seriously. And the master went away while these servants increased the money supply. He specifically turned away. He did not supply help. He was not there micromanaging them at every moment and expected them to do the work. If any of those servants were some of the Christians that I've heard today who talk about not being able to do anything without God's active help or whatever it is that they really mean, that's what I assume they mean, then they would do nothing with that talent. In fact, they would do less than nothing. They would cry in desperation, I can't do anything without my master here at every moment. Is that what God really wants from us? Does God want us to abdicate all of our responsibility to him? Back to Gideon, when Gideon was asking for proofs of God's involvement and God's help in his life, and in this battle that he was about to go to, I think with the Philistines or another one of the uh, other races, other people groups in Canaan at the time, or in their land at the time, uh, it used to be Canaan, anyway, there's still the fact that Gideon had to do the legwork. Gideon had to gather the people. Gideon had to sift the people. Gideon had to go out and do the battle. Gideon was the one who came up with the idea to clang the pots and so on and scare their enemies and blow the trumpets and all that sort of thing. God did not instruct him to do that. God instructed him to reduce the, the uh, amount of people in the army at the time. But he didn't tell him to do every little thing. He expected, as far as I can tell, Gideon to figure that out and to do it himself. Now, the areas, once again, well, let me pre premise this or preface this a little bit. The question begins to come up at this point. What is our responsibility and what is God's responsibility? And this could just as equally uh, lend to the question, what is our responsibility and what is another person's responsibility? I could go back to my own life and apply the same question. And it's really quite simple, once again. When we are trying to do something or have been ordered to do something, told to do something, there is that which we are capable of doing and that which we are not capable of doing. That which is under our power to do, and that which is not under our power to do. Gideon could not guarantee victory against a freaking massive army with only 300 people. God was the one who was telling them, him that they would win. And as far as I can tell, it is for this and similar reasons why Gideon understandably got kind of nervous and was asking for proof. Okay, God, you really with us? Like, this is this is stressing me out, something fierce, man. Just, just, get, just throw me a solid. Let me know that you're really with us. And if you show me that you really are, 
I'll do it. I'll do it no matter how small my army is, no matter how crazy the odds are, I'll do it. Why? Because Gideon did not have the power or responsibility to make that a definite, to make it a shoo-in. But God did. So God takes his, uh, I don't know, again, it's hard to really put it into exact terms, but trust test, if you will, kind of like a trust fall. The fleece put out. He shows him that he will, in fact, follow through on his word. And Gideon's like, all right, then I will do my part. Gideon did what he could do. He didn't think that he could do what he could not do on his own strength. He couldn't guarantee victory simply by himself. The servants in the parable of the talents could take care of the money in his absence, but they couldn't manifest the money without the master. The master has to give them the money to steward in the first place. Just as we could not manifest ourselves on our own in all of our abilities, all of our literal talents, um, our resources, and so on. But what we can do is manage all of those things. We can manage the talents that we were born with. We can manage the resources that we accumulate. We can live our everyday lives as unto the Lord without needing God to be present to micromanaging everything for our sakes. We can't save ourselves from our own sins. We can't save ourselves from damnation. So what does God do? He comes and does it for us. We can accept a free gift from God as given to us on the cross with Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ. We can sign our lives over to him in obeisance and loyalty and fidelity and live that way for the rest of our lives. I don't mean sinlessly. I mean with fidelity. If you want to understand what is genuinely your responsibility, simply ask yourself the question, what can you do? Now, I don't think that means we shouldn't ask God for aid. In many cases, ask God for his confirmation. We might be unsure of our direction. doesn't mean that God is going to give it to us. It might be that if God doesn't give it to us, he's hinting that we don't actually need the confirmation at all. Who's to say? Anything, as far as I can tell, is askable from God. But as far as I can tell, not the complete abdication of all your responsibilities. Not this claim that we are going to do nothing unless God is actively there micromanaging with us. You might be thinking about Moses in the desert when he says, unless you go with us, we will not go to Israel at all. We will not go into Canaan and fight. And God respected that. God liked that. But again, that is a matter of fidelity and loyalty. God was talking at that time about turning away from them and just having an angel go with them because he was pissed off at the Israelite people. Of course he was, because they were constantly unfaithful to God. It wasn't a matter of, we can't lift our legs and go into Canaan and do this fighting unless you micromanage, micromanage everything that we're doing. Even when they uh, took down Jericho, God left them to do the fight and got pissed when one man stole idols. 
which they had been specifically told not to do. And sorry, it wasn't even idols. It was just stuff. It was silver and possessions. He told them to get rid of it all, burn it all, dispose of it all. And that's that. And one didn't. And he was held accountable for it. See, at the end of the day, as far as I can tell, the kind of people who preach this can't-do-anything-desperate-for-God sort of lingo are those who, at, the, at their core, don't want to actually have responsibility. They don't want to take their lives that seriously. They want to be able to just whine and complain and pray and pl plead and so on and just expect that God will take care of all of their needs for them. Does God want us to pray for our daily bread? Yes, Jesus told us to do that. Does God want us to not bother to go out and get bread when we have money to buy it? No. That's our responsibility. To have our daily bread available, yes. To have our daily bread taken to our front door and crammed into our mouths, well, we have arms and money. So for me, what I have learned is that when somebody comes to me and they want to change, well, I believe them that they want to. I don't necessarily believe them that they will to. This goes back to a very recent episode. We judge people not by what they say, not even necessarily by what they do, but by the fruits of their actions. Are they producing results? Are they doing the work? And are they doing it the right way? Are they actually manifesting change? Those are the people worth investing into. And you might say, oh, but that seems rather cruel, doesn't it? You're sifting people out as if they're just wheat and chaff. Yes, exactly as Jesus exemplified. At the end of the parable of the talents, what does he say? To those who have, even more will be given to them. To those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Yes, it seems cruel, but it is also how people work. See, for me, this is just another step in the pathway of where I started. I have always wanted to see how people tick and understand it. Well, this is one of the ways that people tick. If they do not have the will, if they do not do the work and see results, they don't really want to at all. Because if they really wanted to, they would keep searching and searching and searching for the right way, and they would freaking do it. They would be so desperate, in, the, in another sense of that word, to be rid of their problems, that they would not stop until it's done. Those are the only people that are worth investing into because those are the only people who will do anything. See, if you remember the beginning of this talk, you might notice that there's a bit of a wrong wording that came out. And I did that somewhat on purpose. I talked about the fact that I like to try to help people or do what I can to help people. And that is incorrect. We never help people. 
We help by taking action in our own lives. In one sense, we can help. And that's why I still take the effort to spread wisdom and understanding. But that's all that I can do. I can spread the seed. I can try to plant it. But if it does not sprout and grow, in other words, if the person does not do things on their own time, nothing's really going to happen at all. If we believed that we could help people in the sense of I can cause people's lives to change, then we are the ones taking away the free will of others. And because that is impossible, then it is not worth the effort. So I hope that gives you a lot of good things to think about, as always. Until next time.